Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the WTMJ Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Eight days until the election. Early voting is going on right now, and crime continues unabated in the city of Milwaukee. Here's the latest story. Five, let's see, five people, five separate shootings on Sunday, October 30th. That would be yesterday. Five people, including two 16-year-old boys, were wounded, and in one instance, a dog was the shooter's intended target, according to the police. Let's see, Muskego and Beecher, a 28-year-old Milwaukee man, was shot around 2.50 a.m., Police said he was taken to the hospital, expected to survive. It was the second time in as many days that MPD responded to that area. Um, There was a shooting near Muskego and Rogers around 1230 a.m. on Saturday the 29th. Tatonia and Good Hope. Police say a 16-year-old boy was shot and taken to the hospital around 1230 p.m. He is expected to survive. An 18-year-old Milwaukee man was taken into custody. 20th and Capitol. 41-year-old Milwaukee man was in the hospital after being shot. 24th and Lloyd, police said another 16-year-old boy was shot around 2.30 p.m. And then 6th and Vienna, a Milwaukee man was shot after an argument around 5.30 p.m., taken to the hospital, expected to survive. 32-year-old man was taken into custody. And then, of course, this doesn't uh, take into account What happened on Sunday afternoon around 62nd and Silver Spring? Silver Spring, of course, for those of you not familiar with the area around here, it is a major east-west thoroughfare. So shooting about 3 o'clock p.m., four housing units and four cars were hit by bullets. There were people inside two of the housing units, but no one was hit. But here's the dazzling detail about this. So we're talking about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Sunday afternoon. All right, so yesterday afternoon, 3 o'clock, you've got a shooting. Somebody is firing at a housing complex, 62nd and Silver Spring. And again, if you know the area, you can pretty much picture that. Here's the dazzling detail. Police say more than 50 bullet cases were recovered. 50, five zero bullet cases. So this isn't just, okay, some joker, you know, with a gun decides it's going to be fun to take a pot shot at a building or something like that. Not that you could understand how that would be fun, but this isn't like one shot or two shots. This is 50 shots, 50 shots. So presumably you have multiple people who are probably carrying semi-automatic handguns and they either reload a couple times or there's enough of them that they're just firing indiscriminately. 50 shots, 5-0. And and once again, I say to describe the city of Milwaukee as the wild, wild west is to do a huge disservice to the wild, wild west. Because when they had gunfights, at least you had the one gunfighter that faced down the other gunfighter in the town square at high noon. This is three o'clock in the afternoon. You've just got bullets flying all over. And again, this is, it's a major thoroughfare. This is 62nd and Silver Spring. And once again, it is just a flat out miracle that you don't have some pedestrian who was in the area or somebody who was in like an alley behind the houses or, or whatever. It's just a flat out miracle that you don't have somebody who's dead as a result of this. Okay. 
real interesting story in the New York Times today, and I don't know what to make of it. The election is a week from tomorrow. Most of the smart money thinks that there is going to be a Republican wave. And I understand whenever I say that, there's some people who say, oh, 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 don't do that. You're just you're just drinking the Republican Kool-Aid. It's not going to be like that at all. Well, I'm just telling you, most of the smart money, Democrats and Republicans, think that what's going to happen is that the Republicans are going to take control of the House of Representatives and the Senate is pretty much, it, it's a toss-up. It, it's, it's a pick em. It kind of depends on really whether Herschel Walker can pick up that seat down in Georgia whether Laxalt, the Republican, can gain that seat in, uh, um, in, in Nevada and whether they pick up a seat in Arizona. Th- those, those are things. And then the question is, can you hold the seats in Ohio and Pennsylvania? So it, it, but it's going to be close one way or the other. Most of the polls that are out there now show the Republicans ahead. That, that's most of the polls. So the New York Times comes out with this poll today, and in a couple—they didn't poll Wisconsin, but in a couple of the key states, they show the races either tied or leaning to the Democrats. All right, but it's the most interesting description, and I sent it out on a Twitter, on a tweet, but the problem is it's behind a paywall, so unless you subscribe to the New York Times, you can't see it. But it's the most interesting story I've ever seen because they put out the poll— and they say, okay, these are the results. But then they spend pretty much the entire article saying, we have no confidence in these results. You know, the poll that we're doing here uses a lot of the same sort of technology and stuff as the polls we did in the past. And we freely acknowledge for the last several years that our, our polling has underrepresented Republicans in, in a big way. And we're trying to adjust for that. But it's it's this amazing story because normally it's going to be – it would be, okay, you've got you know the, the Democrats slightly ahead in a couple of these races. But now they're saying, well, we've got them slightly ahead, but we understand that pretty much all the other polls out there – disagree with ours, and, and we're we're really not confident that we're right. Um, we're just putting it out there that these are the numbers that we have. So for people who rely on polls, I, I think you have to take it with like a large grain of salt. The only poll, of course, that really matters is what happens a week from tomorrow. And did I mention, open voting is underway. All right, when we come back, I want to talk to you about a decision that a local district attorney has made and get your reaction. Stick around. In Wisconsin, it is a technical violation of the law to take a selfie of your ballot. That's it's. I cannot explain why we have that, but it, it it's it is a violation of the law to take a selfie of your own ballot. See, it, it's one thing to say, okay, you can't go into a polling place and you can't take pictures of you know the people that are voting or other people's ballots, but it is very common across the country for people who who are proud of the fact that they voted. So what they will do is they'll you know they'll. They'll cast their ballot, and then they'll take a selfie of it, and they'll put it up on the Internet saying, hey, I voted, and these are the people that I voted for. Now, as a general rule, this is viewed as a no-big-deal sort of thing, except in Ozaki County, a member of the Mequon-Thienesville School Board has now been charged with a felony, a felony count of voter fraud, for posting a photo of his completed April ballot on his Facebook page. 
If convicted, the guy's name is Paul Bazell, he faces up to three and a half years in prison and up to $10,000 fine on a Class I felony. I'm looking at the criminal complaint now. Um, On Saturday, April 2nd, 2022, such and such came to the Mequon Police Department to report possible voter fraud. The person advised officers that Paul Bazell had posted photos of a voting ballot for the upcoming Mequon-Thienesville school board election on March 22nd, March 27th, 2002. This was like the recall election, and he was actually a candidate. Complainant knows that Bazell is a resident of the city of Mequon and that he was a candidate for the upcoming school board election. The informant provided screenshots of the Facebook post from Bazell that were sent to him by another person who was out of town. Um, then somebody else came in to report the same book, same Facebook post by Bazell. And so these are obviously that that was a very, very heated school board race. So obviously these are people who are kind of on the other side who are now reporting it. All right. Um, then they say that the officer received a phone call from Paul Bazell. Um The officer told him the nature of the complaint and that the posting of the photo was illegal. Bozell stated it was understanding that it was not illegal to post a photo of a ballot with his name on it. Okay, um, so then they're, you know, then they're going on and they confirm that, um, yeah, that he had um, he had, had posted this particular ballot. So he posted the ballot selfie on Facebook. He's now been charged with a a felony for doing this. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. Now, let me be real clear here. If you you look at the law in Wisconsin, I think it is technically a violation to post a, a ballot selfie. No question about it. There is a serious question as to whether or not that that prohibition is constitutional. I mean, do you it, it, as long as you're posting your own ballot, I mean, there's a serious issue, First Amendment issue as to whether or not the state can restrict you. But beyond that, I guess the larger question is, given everything that, that goes on, why why would we care about this one way or the other? Now, in the story that appears in the Journal Sentinel, the prosecutor in this case says, well, I agree with you that felony penalties don't fit the behavior, but a prosecutor can't choose the penalties to apply. There's greater flexibility to resolve cases after they're charged when the parties might agree to a different statute to plead to for the sake of resolution. All right, our number is 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. Look, I'm sorry. And look, I'm as law and order as they come. But this is absurd. A prosecutor always has discretion in what charges that they are going to bring. Just like a police officer who sees somebody driving 31 in a 25-mile-an-hour zone, doesn't pull people over all the time and give them tickets. There's always a degree of latitude, right? You know, a prosecutor, and I remember when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office, we always had, there was this sheet that you had if you wanted to do what they called decline prosecution. So in a situation where you look at a case and you say, 
you know, there, there's no there's no interest in prosecuting this case. There may be a technical violation of the law, but under the circumstances of this case, well, you know, we're we're there's no nothing to be gained by prosecuting it. So our number eight five five six one six one six twenty. They've charged the guy with a felony. It carries a potential penalty of three and a half years in prison. Now, he's not going to do a day in prison. Let's understand that. There's no judge in his right mind that's going to sentence this guy to, to prison for this. But it is possible that he could end up with a felony conviction for posting a selfie. 855-616-1620. What do you think? We discuss. 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. Okay, Wisconsin statute 12.13 defines election fraud under Section 1F as anyone who shows his or her marked ballot to any person or places a mark upon the ballot so it is identifiable as his or her ballot is guilty of a felony. Shows his or her marked ballot to any person. So what, what, what happens, and a lot of people do this across the country. Wisconsin is unique in, it's one of only a handful of states that has this particular provision of the law. Lots of people take pictures of their ballots. Hey, I voted, this, and this is who I voted for. So you have this guy who was running for school board, who actually was the leading vote-getter. He takes a ballot, what they call ballot selfie, puts it up on Facebook. I assume a couple of his opponents um, are the ones that actually complain. And so now he's looking at a felony charge. 855-616-1620. Jeff, this sounds crazy. Who would care? It just doesn't matter. Jeff, he should have just stolen a bunch of cars from the city of Milwaukee. That way he wouldn't have been in so much trouble. Well, that is true. There is this ultimate irony that you can steal car after car after car in the city of Milwaukee and nothing is probably going to, you know, happen uh, to you. Um, Jeff, prosecutors um, in Milwaukee County seem to have no problems with not charging car thieves. Well, well, right. Um, Jeff, so because of the stupid law, he now risks a felony, which could prevent him from owning a gun or even voting. Yeah, it might result in him being tossed out of, of office, theoretically. Um, I, I guess I'd, I'd have to look at that. But, I mean, here, here's the bigger point. And th- this is a stupid law. And I understand there's people that say, well, the, the law is on the books for this reason or that reason. But don't we want to have some don't we want to have some degree of discretion? OK, let's start with Tom in Waukesha. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Tom. Uh, first, I think it's the first time I've ever called for you. But uh, this thing rang true to my head in that uh, I figure if this D.A. doesn't have anything better to do than to charge a felony on this type of account, then maybe the DA needs to examine carefully his priorities. That's all. Well, I, I, it's silly. I think it's silly. Well, right. Or or there must really be nothing going on in Ozaki County. <laughs> you know, if, maybe what the DA can do is like like volunteer to handle a bunch of prosecutions out of Milwaukee County where you got a lot going on. I mean, look to me, this is just to me. This is candidly, Tom. It's like the no harm, no foul sort of thing where you you the, the cop doesn't give you a ticket for going thirty two and the twenty five. He just kind of let you go because you're not creating a problem. I, I do not understand the point of bringing a felony prosecution in this case. I just flat out don't. So, no, nor do I. Thanks for the call. Oh. Appreciate it. Okay. Um, let's talk to Steve in West Bend. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. Thanks Hi. for taking my call. Sure. 
Um, there's actually a couple good reasons why you uh, have this law, and it has to do with election integrity. Um, first, it's so that you cannot prove how you voted so you could sell your vote. Okay. The other reason is so that an overbearing boss or spouse or whatever cannot demand to know how you voted, you know, demand proof of how you voted. So there are reasons for this law. Well, I guess now, so first of all, let's take the second one first, that there's, if you want to have a law, but but see, that that's punishing that's punishing the, the voter. If you want to have a law that says that nobody else can demand that somebody else reveal how they voted, that that's fine. You go after them. Why would you go after the the, the person in this case that then would be like the double victim? I, I guess I and, and as far as selling your vote, I don't get it. What I don't understand what your point would be. Why why would that prevent you from selling your vote? Well, it's the way of providing proof of how you voted, yeah. so you can go collect your payment. Okay, well, in that case, if somebody's doing that, then you bring the charge against the person that's that's paying you off. I mean, I think. think I mean, I, I think. I mean, I under. I understand. I guess. I guess. Okay, so you're saying that? Well, you know, you could say I'm going to sell my vote, and this is how I, I prove to do it. Well, the bigger problem then is the person you know who's paying you off. That that's where you would want to concentrate. I guess. I just. I just think that you should have, and you do have, an absolute right. If Look, I, I voted two weeks ago, okay? I remember a week and a half, whenever, a week ago, whenever it first started opening up. If I want to come on the radio, and I don't think it's any surprise, if I tell you who I voted for, why shouldn't I be able to do that? I mean, do, do I, 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 and I do. I have a right to say I voted for so-and-so, I voted for so-and-so. So if I have an absolute right to come out and publicly and say, hey, I voted for Ron Johnson, or I voted for Tim Michaels, or I voted for Tony Evers, or I voted for whoever, if you have a right to do that, which I think we would all argue you do, what, why, why shouldn't you be able to take that selfie of your own ballot? Now, if we were talking about somebody else's ballot, I, I understand. I, look, I, I read the law. I mean, I, I get it that the law says that you're not allowed to show your marked ballot to any person. And by putting it on Facebook, you are technically showing that. I think it is clearly unconstitutional. I think the taxpayers in Ozaki County should be angry because here's what's going to happen. The DA's office is going to have to spend taxpayer money defending this case, either in circuit court or on an appellate court level or on a state court level or maybe in federal court when this gets challenged on First Amendment basis. So I don't know if it's going to cost them 5000 or 10000 or 50000 or 100000 I don't know how much money it's going to cost the taxpayers to, to go after something that everybody agrees is just flat-out dumb. Let, let's concentrate on on car thefts. Let's concentrate on violent criminals. Let's concentrate on reckless driving instead of trying to make an example of somebody for violating what strikes to me as being a completely and totally unconstitutional law in the first place. Okay, so if you're the Packers general manager, do you make a trade? You you either doing that or you're punting on the rest of the season. I okay. might punt on the season. Well, that was that was going to be my point. My follow-up question would be given all the problems that this team has, um, is there really any like one player that some other team was going to willing to give up that you would bring in that might make a difference? It is so rare in the NFL. I feel like that you trade for a true impact player. The 49ers in the middle of the got, season, yeah, in the middle of the, in season, the, of the season. You know, season, usually yeah. the teams are willing to give up on a guy for a reason, and that's a red flag. And we all know Aaron Rodgers isn't the most 
gracious and trusting quarterback to begin with. So say you trade for a guy, he drops the a pass in the third week or he or the third play of the game, he runs the wrong route and Aaron Rodgers is done with him and it's move on. So then what did you do? Well, also you you I mean, I mean football, it's foot like okay, baseball, you you go you, you trade for a shortstop the the way the way you play shortstop everybody plays shortstop yeah. the same way they might position themselves differently and stuff but football you gotta you gotta know the plays you have to work on the timing and stuff I guess I, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer on this but if you look at they're three and five if you look at the problems they have I think it goes beyond any one player you look at the schedule they've got coming up I mean they they can bring in the the second coming of um, you know, of you know, fill in the blank, James yeah. Lofton or whatever, and I don't think it's going to make a material difference. So I, I guess I don't know if it's punting on the season, but I think it is. If it is what it is, and I certainly wouldn't overpay to bring in somebody because I don't think it's going to make much difference. You know, yeah, and and then you look deep down: is this team good enough to say beat you know the Philadelphia Eagles if you made it to the NF- NFC divisional round or something along those lines? You know, what is the what is the return you're expecting? In the NFL, I feel like it's so much more of if you think you're close to a Super Bowl, can a guy put you over the edge? Yeah, right. Yes. Right. If you, yeah, yeah, we need we need that one extra yeah. player. Von Miller. We're going to get the Von yeah. Miller. Right. That that's the guy who's going to be that this super pass rusher or whatever who's going to complement it. But special teams is a disaster. That the defense is overrated and the offense is just very very flawed. I mean that the. the Look, I'm a Packers fan, but the, the reality is you watch these games and you see how Aaron Rodgers is looking old. That's yeah. We all get older. Aaron Rodgers is looking old. There's just, You just see this huge talent gap between where the Bills are and where the, the Packers are, and it's more than just one player. That's just the honest-to-goodness truth. You know, and is it worth taking—it it seems like Aaron Rodgers really likes Romeo Dobbs, so is it worth bringing in a guy who's then going to take reps away from a guy who— yeah. You know, could develop in. I'm not going to say Devonte Adams, but a guy who could possibly develop into a number one. Is it worth it? I, and I think punting on the season maybe is a little harsh, but just accepting who you are. Well, well right, exactly. And I, I agree with you completely. I mean, the problems I think with the Packers it was it was in in the off season. It was that they assumed that they were going to be good enough and they were going to be mm-hmm. able to be competitive without going out and and making some moves to replace Devonte Adams. And now. You, you can't. Aaron Rodgers is a year older, and he's not the mobile quarterback he was, and they got problems on the line. No, I'm with you. I mean, I guess if you can if you can pick somebody up, that's fine. But anybody that thinks it's going to materially change stuff, they're three and five. Look ahead at the schedule. They're playing the Dallas Cowboys. They're playing the Philadelphia Eagles. They're. I mean, I, there's. They're going to be lucky to. They're going to be lucky to win eight games. They will be lucky to end up eight and nine, regardless if they trade somebody. Yeah, I, I think I'm. I'm with you. You're just kind of going to accept it. This is going to be the season. It was a miscalculation by the front office. A rare one, but a miscalculation yeah. on how far Aaron Rodgers' talent can carry you. And you kind of hit the line of, here's as far as we're going. Um, I agree. But, you know, so for everybody who's saying, oh, you got to make these big trades, I just don't know that, I just don't know that that's, that's out there. But we will know because the trade deadline is tomorrow, right? So uh, tomorrow at 5 p.m., I believe. Tomorrow at 5 p.m. When we come back, I have an interesting number for you. And my question is going to be, Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Stick around.
I was looking at the Packers schedule, and we, you know, our, our my my teammates down at ESPN do a better job of this, and I'm I'm just the fan. So they're three and five right now, and you know, keep in mind that they lost games, they lost to Washington, they lost to the New York Jets, they lost to the Giants. But okay, so so they're they're three and five. They've got nine games left. Okay, so here 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 are the games. They play at Detroit next week. Detroit's a hot mess, and so you figure that's a win. They play. At home against the Cowboys, the Cowboys will probably be double-digit favorites. Then they play um, at home against Tennessee Titans. That game's a, that game could go either way. Then they go on the road to play against the Eagles. Well, that's going on the road. To, that's like Buffalo. So let's take the Cowboys and the, and the Eagles. Those are probably losses. They play the Bears. Then they play the Rams. They're going to be underdogs there. That's three games. Christmas Day, they go to Miami and play the Dolphins. Dolphins aren't bad. That's four games. Then the Vikings come into Lambeau. That's five games. I mean, those are at least five games that they will be underdogs in, and that takes you to 10 losses. So, okay, maybe... You know, maybe they, they they steal a game here or there. I mean, maybe they go to Miami and beat the Dolphins. You know, maybe they beat the Vikings there. But, I mean, I'm sorry. I just don't see how you get this team with a receiver or without a receiver, given where they are right now. I don't see how you get them with more than eight or or maybe nine wins at, at the most. And, and that's, that's assuming, I mean, have you seen anything really? Is there like one player that's going to make the difference? You've got nine games left. Just to get to nine wins, you got to go six and three. I just, I, the math, the the math becomes, the the math becomes daunting. Somebody says, are the Packers sellers? Well, um, I don't know about that because I, I think I just think this is a bad year for them. I mean, I, I think sometimes you can you can panic and you can say it, it's a team on the decline. I just think it's a team that has lots of flaws. But I, again. You know, I I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer on this. I try to be a realist. That's why I was watching the game yesterday, and I wasn't I wasn't all bent out of shape over anything because the truth of the matter is the Buffalo Bills were a better team. They were just a flat out better team. They were they're a good team that's going to compete for the Super Bowl. The Packers are a middle of the road team that maybe if they get hot can get into the playoffs, and then they're going to get beat by one of the the better teams. But you know, we can decide. But you just look at that schedule. Tell me how they get to. Like, how, tell me how they get to 10 and 7. Tell, tell me how they, they win seven out of their last nine games. I just don't see it. Okay. One, as a matter of fact, before I went on the air today, I was talking to a political analyst, and we were discussing what we thought was going to happen a week from Monday and, and a week from tomorrow and in the election. And he, he said something that I've been saying for the longest time. He said he thinks that the Democrats made a huge mistake by putting pretty much all their electoral eggs in the abortion basket. And I've been saying that for for, for months. I, I think that, that that will motivate a certain segment of people to vote. But as a general rule, that only goes so far. And I think I believe that you're starting to see that in, in the polls. But I, I, sometimes you can make the argument that if abortion is the only issue you have, well, that's the issue that you have. Well, here's the number. But I, I want to talk about something beyond just the politics of this. This is the story in the New York Times today. In the two months after the end of Roe versus Wade, after the Dobbs decision came out in late June, legal abortions in the United States fell around 6%. New data shows that the number of abortions fell by more than 10,000. 
after Roe versus Wade, you know, was was overturned. Now, abortion is not illegal in this country. If if you're in Wisconsin and you want an abortion, you can travel to Minnesota. You can travel to Illinois. And as a matter of fact, you know, Planned Parenthood, if you can't afford it, they, they will pay for you to do that. So people can get abortions, although it is admittedly an inconvenience. It, admittedly, it is another barrier to doing that. But they're looking at the number of abortions that were performed over that, that first two months period. And my guess is, you know, if that, that number is going to do nothing but grow, you know, once you start looking at numbers moving forward. But, but down 6%. Six percent fewer abortions in the first two months after the Dobbs decision came out. Here is my question for you. Putting aside the politics of this, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? The number of abortions down by about six percent. Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. Good, bad, and why do you think so? We discuss in just a moment. I just find this to be an interesting conversation because I understand there's, there's the politics of abortion that, that, that's out there and you can't turn on the television without seeing, you know, this, this you know, some, some sort of pro-abortion ad directed, you know, against Republican candidates and stuff. But, but apart from that, I, the, the numbers are out. Some people are saying, well, how do you know this? Well, and, and this is not unique. Um, health services and hospitals all across the country report the, num- the raw number of abortions that are done, and, and they have for years. So this isn't a unique sort of thing. And so the numbers, the first two months that since Roe versus Wade was tossed out show that abortions are around 6%. Now, it may be less than that because if it's what they call a self-managed abortion, um, where you're able to procure like the abortion pills and stuff like that, and it's not done by a medical provider, that would not be that would not be incorporated in there. But nevertheless, it's the number of abortions are down. There, there's no question about it. And I guess my question to you is, okay, is this is this a good thing or is a bad thing? Um, 1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. Jeff, I think it's a good thing, and hopefully people are figuring out alternatives to abortion that are more uh, that are more preventative. Um, Jeff, with so much contraception available on, on almost every street corner, I have not understood why abortions are such a hot topic. There is a possibility that with abortions not so readily available, maybe it will cause people to be a little bit more sexually responsible. I don't think that that's a bad thing. Jeff, I think it's a great thing. Um, The way I look at it is if someone gave you a chance at this thing called life, why would you deny life to someone else? Well, I I, I think, you know, it's obviously a little bit more complicated than that, but I I think that's one of the issues that are there. 855-616- one six twenty, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk, and which is the WTMJ Talk and Text Line. Um, so, I, I, somebody said, Jeff, I find it bad that the whole scenario. The only bad thing I find in the whole scenario is that they feel it's okay to track women's personal private choices and such. And again, my comment to that was, it, it's not new. All states report the raw numbers and have done so for years. I guess. I look at this, and, it, and it's impossible to have a conversation about this without taking the politics out. 
I, I understand that. But I'm trying to take the politics out of this. And I guess it, I, I look at these numbers and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Now, I am more moderate on the issue of abortion than you might be. I mean, I, I'm, I'm the guy who said I think, you know, where, I think where Wisconsin is going to land at some point in time, and I can't tell you when, but where Wisconsin is going to land is somewhere along the lines of Mississippi or Texas or one of those states where elective abortions, which would cover rape and incest, up to the first 14 or 15 or 16 weeks, whatever that is, which covers 92 to 95 percent of the abortions. And then after that, to um, for the for the life of the mother, I, I think those that's where we're going to end up. I think candidly, I think that's where we should end up. I mean, I understand there's some people on, on the radical left who don't think there should be any restrictions at all and don't have problems with partial birth abortion, that sort of stuff. Well, I don't think that's mainstream. I, I think, you know, ultimately we're going to end up somewhere and I don't know how we get there, believe me. But um, right now we're kind of a we're kind of an anti-abortion island, and that goes back to the point I was making earlier that you know people people who want to get an abortion can get an abortion. You it, it, admittedly, it's a little bit more difficult, but you, you travel down to Illinois, and Planned Parenthood will fund that trip, or you travel over to Minnesota. Story today in the Chicago Tribune: Minnesota has become an island of abortion access because not just Wisconsin, but also South Dakota and Iowa, those have all become kind of anti-abortion islands as well. So the abortion industry is thriving in Minnesota because people are coming across the border and um, doing that. But I guess I look at this and I say, okay, I'm not sure how you can argue that it's a bad thing that, you know, more and more people are are making the choice to, to keep keep their babies. I, I just, it, it's tough for me to say that. And that comes from the perspective of somebody who, like I say, believes that there, there should be, that there is a balancing act that, that's there and believes at some point in time that that's what the law is going to be. The unfortunate thing is that there, there's no middle ground. And you've seen this. You've got a lot of politicians on the left who will not vote for any sort of limitation on abortion at all. And that's not going to happen. And then you have politicians on the right who, again, won't vote for anything that would allow abortion, where I think the vast majority of us are, like I've been saying, sort of in in that middle ground where we say, okay, well, if you can pass a law that covers 92 to 95 percent of the abortions, which is where I believe the majority of people are, that's kind of the common sense way of doing this. But going back and looking at these numbers, the number of abortions down, I, I just it's it's very difficult for me to see how anybody can say, oh, that that's a bad thing, because, again, abortions are still available if people want them. Admittedly, if you live in Wisconsin, it's more difficult to do that, and there are barriers that have been put up, and you can argue whether those barriers are fair or not. But the overall number of abortions being down, I don't care whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, I don't see how you can argue that that in and of itself is a bad thing. When we come back— Big case in front of the United States Supreme Court. I am fascinated to discuss it with you. Don't go anywhere. Carolina, these these are universities which, in accordance with what the Supreme Court used to do before, will will consider race as a factor. But but it's not just every race. For example, at Harvard, um, if you are black, you get extra credit for being black. If you are Asian American, 
Um, well, then, you know, they, they say they've already got too many Asians. So, you know, you, you get no credit. So it's not just a question of what minority are you. It's not just a question of whether you are a minority. The question is, you know, it's what type of minority are you? Is that right? Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. When it comes to affirmative action in college admissions, the 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 case that sort of sets the standards goes back to 1978, Regents of the University of California versus Bakke. And, and what the Supreme Court said in 1978 is that race can, under certain circumstances, be considered in the interest of trying to provide a, a diverse student body. The Bakke decision said you can't use quotas, that would be illegal, and said that you can't use preferences to compensate for historical racial discrimination. But they said that an applicant's race or ethnicity could count as a factor, among other things like geographic origin, athletic or musical talents, to promote educational benefits of diversity, which the court identified as a compelling interest for the university. So in other words, they said, if you've got two kids that are absolutely equal, you know, you can use race as the deciding factor as to who gets that spot, assuming that they are all equal. Well, the, the challenge is today, um, and say that, look, that that's, that that's wrong, that that's still discriminating on the basis of, of race. And one of the arguments that's being made is that, for example, they say at Harvard, the people who are challenging this, at Harvard, it's not, it's not so much, you know, whether or not there are minority preferences, but it's which minority are you? For example, for whatever reasons, um, Asian Americans tend to do very, very well academically, much better than, say, Hispanic applicants or black applicants. So here's the numbers. What they say is, is at Harvard, um, let's say that you got everybody that gets the, the top academic rating at Harvard. So you've got that whole universe of people. What they find is that um, of all those people that get that top academic rating, 56% of black students will be admitted, 31% of Hispanic students will be admitted, 15% of whites, and 12.7% of Asian Americans. So the idea being, well, we, we've got, the, the at least if you look at the numbers, the argument would be, well, we, we've already got enough Asian Americans, so what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, pick other um, Americans from other of these different groups. Um this is being challenged. Now, like I say, there, there's a long line of cases going back to 1978 that uphold the use of race in some factor. Now, the argument, again, is everything has to be equal, and there's some people who question how could everything be equal. But the, what the court is today considering is whether or not that precedent, whether or not that ruling is right, and whether or not it is, in fact, discriminatory to take race into account when you are trying to decide who should be admitted to schools. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. Now, clearly, you have some groups that are historically underrepresented. There's, there's no question about it. Also, I, I think there is 
an advantage. I think you can make a strong argument that if you want to have that the diversity is good to have on a college campus. The question I have, though, is if that diversity comes as a result of discriminating based on race, in other words, saying, all right, we, we want more Hispanic students, for example. And so what we're going to do is, because you're Hispanic, you go to the head of the line ahead of the Asian American students. All right, is that right? Or should we really have a, a truly colorblind society, and should it be decided on the merits? And if we throw out race a, as a factor, all right, can you consider other factors like, they, like uh, again, music, sports, um, economic situations? Because that's... That still remains a consideration. You know, if you have applicants that are from, like, disadvantaged areas, that, that's a factor. White, black, you know, Hispanic, Asian, that's a factor that they consider. Should we toss out race as a consideration once and for all? 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line to the Supreme Court today. Um, is being asked to overturn its 1978 decision on affirmative action that said that, well, you can't have quotas, but race can be a factor in college admissions. And the argument is everything being equal, the, the idea is you, you can, in the interest of diversity, you can, you can give a, a nod, you can use race. And, um, for example, at Harvard in particular, which was one of the schools that's the subject of the lawsuit, uh, among, among the, the kids – that they say everything is equal for, um, race plays a, a pretty big role. Let's see, 56% of the black students, 33% of Hispanic students who were assigned the top academic rating or admitted compared with 15.3% of whites and 12.7% of Asian Americans. So I, I think if you just look at those numbers, it, it's very clear that race plays a, a pretty significant role in Again, assuming that everybody is equal, 855-616-1620. Jeff, I think colleges and universities should use the percentage of national demographics for enrolling students in their institutions. Hmm. Jeff, it's reverse discrimination however you look at it. The applicant should be determined on academics, not on the color of their skin or their race. Um, let's see. Jeff, um, let's see. Uh, in my opinion, all college applicants should be submitted blindly. No race, gender, etc. Just your academic uh, background. Little side story. I went to grad school at Marquette and tried for two years to get into a doctoral program for history. I would be lying if I told you that I felt the main factor, the main reason that I didn't get in was because I am a white male from parents who are not divorced and I am from the middle class. My academics are just as high as everyone else's. I had published papers. I went to conferences, but I did not fit into many colleges' boxes for their admission requirements. I believe that that is fundamentally wrong. Jeff, how can race be a factor without some unspoken quota? Well, I think that's a, I think that's a, a very, a very good point. And the, the question becomes: If we're going to truly be a colorblind society, how do you factor in race? Now, nobody argues that you cannot. One way of dealing with this is that you can take economic circumstances into consideration. So if, and by, I think by definition, that's probably going to help you, you know, get a more diverse crowd. But let, let's, just, let's just take the race thing in, in an abstract. Let us say for the sake of argument, we'll, we'll take 
let's say you've got two Hispanic doctors, okay, and, uh, you know, who live in a very, very wealthy part of, you know, whatever town you want it to have, and they're, they're both very, very successful, and they live in a really nice house, and their kid goes to a private school, and that kid applies to Harvard. Okay, well, I guess the question becomes, is it, is it fair to simply say, okay, even just simply because of the fact that you're Hispanic, in my example, that means that you get credit over, I don't know, somebody who's similarly situated who might be white or might be Asian American. And when you look at it like that, I think it's really, really tough to justify those decisions. Because, again, if we're trying to move to a race-neutral society, you've got to be race-neutral neutral, don't you? Now, a couple people are making what I think is a very, very good point. They say, well, I mean, part of the thing is if you have kids that are coming from urban areas who tend to be maybe in in schools that are struggling more than the kids who are going to the expensive private schools or whatever, if they have been able to achieve, maybe maybe they do deserve a a little bit of a a push. And I guess that's where I come down. I say, well, that's fine. You can do that you know, you can you can admit them using the economic circumstance, but you can't discriminate based on race. So if you've got the poor, in this case, the, 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 the white kid or the Asian-American kid or the Hispanic kid or the black kid who are all coming from these economically challenged circumstances, they, they all they all get credit. Um, I do think one of our texters ideas about, you know, maybe if you really wanted, wouldn't it be interesting to simply say, OK, we're. We're not going to ask these questions about what your race is, and we're not going to ask your questions about what your your gender is. We're just going to simply say, apply, and let's look at the various factors. Let's look at your grade point average. Let's look at the stuff that you did in, in high school. Let's look at your extracurriculars. Let's look at all this stuff, but, but let's, let's just leave race out of it. And if you did that, wouldn't it be interesting to see, you know, how this would all turn out? My guess is if you just but purely in the interest of diversity on giving some sort of extra credit for kids coming from economically disadvantaged backgrounds, yes, it might result in a few fewer minority kids being admitted, but probably not that many more. You could do this without, again, trying to give a preference based on race, which candidly, when it comes to equal access to education, I just think is wrong. Now, I don't know. You could go broke trying to figure out how the Supreme Court is going to come down on decisions. I didn't think that they were going to toss out Roe versus Wade. I thought they were going to uphold the 14-week ban that uh, Mississippi had. I didn't think they were going to go as far as to toss out Roe versus Wade. If I had to guess I think that the makeup of this court might take a look at that 1978 Bakke decision and say, you know, we think we think that this is this is still illegal discrimination. And yes, you can take individual characteristics into account, but 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 race cannot be a factor. We'll know probably sometime this spring when the court ultimately makes its ruling. So, very glad to have you with us. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 Those of you who are still on Twitter after Elon Musk has taken it over, it's, it, it is, there, there's just, 
people are just so bent out of shape about this. And uh, there's got people, we're going to boycott Twitter and we're going to have advertisers stop participating. My guess is that Twitter is going to be fine. But uh, since we spoke last on Friday, a a number of of new postings, um, including big piece in the New York Times, the New York Times is very upset because Senator Ron Johnson can communicate with voters through talk radio. And, and he used, I mean, he's been a guest on my program over the years on, on multiple occasions. And uh, the New York Times is upset because Ron Johnson can communicate with voters through talk radio without having to be filtered through the perceptions of reporters, um, to which my response is, is too bad. You know, if you look at the number of stories that have appeared in like the local newspaper that have been hostile to either Mandela Barnes or Tony Evers, you can count those on one hand. More on the other hand, you know, you look at the stories about Ron Johnson, you look at the stories about Tim Michaels, more so Michaels now, because I think the general consensus is that the Johnson is starting to pull away in the election. So, I mean, you look at the stories about Michaels, and it's one after another after another. But that, I think, is one of the beauties of this medium, is that you have politicians who can bypass the traditional media outlets by, uh, again, uh, using, in this case, using radio. But anyhow, one of the other postings I had, and it's kind of a follow-up to what we were just talking about, about the affirmative action issue— Stephen A. Smith of ESPN. You know Stephen A. Smith? Stephen A. Smith, he's the host of their first takes, but he's also, he's kind of ubiquitous. He he shows up on, uh, you know, he, doing, com- not, he, he's not a color commentator. He's just more like a, he's like one of their talking heads. But but he's featured on all sorts of programs, you know, like lead into their basketball coverage and things like that. And he's, I, I think he's, he's sort of a, I mean, a little of him goes a long way with me, but I think he's he's a talented guy. He's loud. He's brash. He's, you know, I guess, you know, what what you look for nowadays in that, that sort of sports talk world. And he also happens to be black. Okay, so he is well compensated. His compensation, Stephen A. Smith makes $12 million a year. He makes $8 million in salary for working for ESPN, and then he's got a, a side production deal where he makes another $4 million. So he makes $12 million a year for, for being a, a talking head. Okay, so that's, that's all well and good, and I don't, I don't begrudge him the, the $12 million a year. But um, on Friday, he's having this, this discussion. And he's talking about how in the World Series this year, there are no U.S.-born black players on the roster of either team. That's the first time since 1950. Okay, so I'm I'm not sure why that is. I think it's more likely that you have black players who— the, the good athletes um, gravitate more towards maybe some other sports, sports other than bas- other than baseball. But I, I don't know what the reason is, but okay, that's a fact. So anyhow, this is what he says. He says, we are still black in this country. We don't trust this country in terms of meritocracy always. We know the bottom line is that just like women are underpaid compared to male counterparts, blacks are underpaid compared to white counterparts. Okay, fine, fine so far. And so when you look at it from that perspective, he continues, and of course people look at me, I'm not talking about me even though I got news for you. I am underpaid compared to some people on television what they get paid. But that's the subject for another day. I ain't apologizing for that to a damn soul. I'm underpaid. Having said all that, it ain't about me. Okay. He makes 
$12 million a, a year for being the, the, the talking head. And I guess my note was that, you know, I, for Stephen A. Smith to suggest that at $12 million a year, he, he's underpaid, and he's underpaid because of his race. My, my note was, I'm not sure he's reading the room very well on this one, because I, I just, I, I don't, I think you can make an argument that, hey, there's this glass ceiling and that there's women who are underpaid regardless of, or, you know, in reference maybe to some of their male counterparts. And you can probably make an argument that you can find, you know, people, persons of color who are underpaid compared to some of their white coworkers. Having said all that, I think if you're an ESPN talking head that's making $12 million a year, I don't think there's going to be too many people who are going to say, boy, Stephen A. Smith, you're right. You know, you're being discriminated against. You've got it really tough, and we got to figure out a way to get you another three or four million. It, I, I, regardless of what the message might be and the merits of the message, I don't think Stephen A. Smith is the particular messenger. But that's just me. They played the monster match. It was a graveyard smash. That is, of course, our tribute to Halloween. We'll have one more Halloween-related discussion coming up in the 2 o'clock hour of the program. All right, I want to talk about what happened in San Francisco a couple days ago. You had the 42-year-old guy who, in the middle of the night, wearing his underwear, his name is David DePape, breaks into Nancy Pelosi's house. He's carrying a hammer. He is confronted by her husband, Paul, who's like 82 years old. And there's an ongoing dialogue between them. Uh, Paul Pelosi ends up calling 911. The police respond. And as they get there, he attacks Mr. Pelosi with with a hammer. And, I mean, the the good news is that Mr. Pelosi wasn't seriously injured. But this is – I mean – it's it's a terrifying sort of circumstance. There, there's no doubt about it. Um, and so it's been interesting to me the way that this whole story has been spun. And um, you, you've got some people on the right who were trying to suggest that maybe this was all just kind of a setup thing. Well, that's ridiculous. And there's some people on the left who are trying to say that, okay, this is this guy was this this MAGA. You know, he, he was one of the MAGA people, and, and that's why he ended up doing it. I think— there's a, there's a middle ground, and there's there's a reality here uh, about this. First of all, this is it is a despicable thing. There, there's no question about it. And whether there's an attack on people on the left or on the right, one of the things, especially in today's sort of hyper volatile environment, and especially with the internet out there, there's a lot of crazy people who are motivated to do different things because those voices in their head tell them to do it, and and that's why, just like. You know, after you had some of the, the threats against the, the Supreme Court justices, I mean, I think one of the things that needs to be done like right away is for elected officials, there needs to be a reemphasis on security. And maybe that means we need to commit more to security to protect people, whether they're Republicans or whether they're they're Democrats. However, having said that, when you go and you talk about this this guy and it's, oh, he was a, a mega Republican. Well, it's a lot more complicated than that. What, what he really was, was he was, he, he was a psychotic, homeless drug addict. I mean, that's, that, that's 
what he was. The Washington Post has this story. Okay, the, the, what they did is, well, here, here's how they write it. The San Francisco Bay Area man arrested in the attack on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband filled a blog a week before the incident with delusional thoughts, including that an invisible fairy attacked an acquaintance and sometimes appeared to him in the form of a bird according to online writings under his name. He published hundreds of blog posts in recent months sharing memes in support of fringe commentators, some far-right personalities. Many of his posts were filled with screeds against Jews, black people, the media, transgender people. During October, he published over 100 posts, while each... Let's see. And then while each loads, a reader briefly glimpses an image of a person wearing a giant inflatable unicorn costume superimposed against the night sky. The photos and videos that followed were often dark and disturbing. He published a drawing of the devil kneeling and asking a caricature of a Jewish person to teach him the arts of lying, deception, cheating and incitement. Several contain lifelike images of rotting human flesh and blood, including a zombified Bill Gates and Hillary Clinton. Um, before those writings were removed Saturday, the Washington Post removed them, reviewed them, as well as gory photographs, illustrations, and videos on a website that the Pape registered under his name in early August and that his daughter um, confirmed was his. Notably, the voluminous writings do not mention Pelosi. Okay, so what you have here is you you have a guy who is well at the risk of oversimplifying this he he's a nut. Um, if you look back at his writings, and the New York Post has a big story on this, they say his politics seem to have little rhyme or reason. In past years, he shared a post about Stephen Colbert's 2006 roast of President George W. Bush at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. He linked to videos of Disney films altered to make it look like the characters were swearing. He claimed Jesus is the Antichrist, which isn't you know, necessarily something that you would expect from, I don't know, somebody who's a right-wing extremist. Um, He lived um, with a notorious local nudist in a Berkeley home, complete with Black Lives Matter sign in the window and an LGBT rainbow flag emblazoned with a marijuana symbol hanging from a a tree. (laughs) A closer look reveals the characteristics of a homeless encampment or what Europeans call an open drug scene in the driveway. There's a broken-down camper van. On the street is a yellow school bus, which neighbors say he occasionally stayed in. Both are filled with garbage typical of such structures in homeless encampments. People come and go from the house and vehicles, in part to partake in the use of potent psychedelic drugs. Um, neighbors described DePape as a homeless addict with politics that was, until recently, left-wing, but of secondary importance to his psychotic and paranoid behavior. Okay, our, our number is 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. First of all, this is a big deal, and, n- and this conversation I- is not designed to minimize that. Th- this is a big deal, breaking in the home of an elected official, any elected official in the middle of the night in your underwear with a hammer looking to apparently cause mayhem and then attacking the spouse of that person. That is something that we all need to be concerned about. And it's something that I think should cause the people who are responsible for providing security to elected officials to really start reassessing, do we need to do more to protect our elected officials and their families, whether they're judges or whether they're high-profile congressmen like Nancy Pelosi or lower-profile congressmen? It, it just it, it doesn't matter. So that's it. But I guess 
I just you knew that this spin was going to come out after the attack. Oh, this is this it's this right wing guy that that's that's out there who's obviously motivated by like Trump and all that sort of stuff. I don't know that that's fair. This guy is a nut. He's I don't know that it's fair to say he's he's a right wing kook. He's just he's a kook. Like I say, you look at his history and apparently there's like affiliations with all sorts of organizations that you would think would be left wing. But then you've got like the racist stuff. You've got the anti-Semitic stuff. He's just a nut. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. And it's these nuts that are out there. And again, this is another one of these stories where. It, it's. I mean, it's not like he was targeting. At least n- none of his writings and stuff had targeted Nancy Pelosi. This, to me, shows the danger of allowing these clearly mentally ill people to roam around the streets because you never know what's going to set them off. One of the reports that are out there is the guy had a, a list of names in his pocket. And and so far, the San Francisco police, I mean, I don't know if it was a hit list or whatever, but so far, the San Francisco police aren't releasing the names of other people that were were on this. Um, And I I don't know what inference you can draw from it. And again, I'm not minimizing this at all. This is a terrible sort of thing. And this, to me, is where I I think, candidly, a lot of our politicians are, are vulnerable. It's the crazies that are out there. And this guy was just full tilt bozo crazy. But to try to see this attack in political terms, I think, is going too far. 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. The, the lesson from this is there's dangerously mentally ill people out there, and we need to figure out how to either get them off the streets before they show up in somebody's house with a hammer and wearing their underwear at 2 o'clock in the morning, or— we, we need to figure out how to get them the help they want, as opposed to trying to see this through a political prism. Our number, 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. There's a big piece in the New York Post. I understand it's the New York Post, but who who analyzes the, the, the background of the Pelosi attacker. And I, I, under, I understand that there was this rush, oh, this is this MAGA guy who was filled with, with this. But if you look at his background, that, that's not the story. He, he's, he's not a MAGA guy. He's mentally ill. He's psychotic and has been that way for a, a number of years. And I, I think one of the things that's being missed by a lot of the mainstream media with this obsession about, oh, this is, you know, this is January 6th, and these are these Trump Republicans. This guy wasn't a Trump Republican. He wasn't anything. He, he's not, well, the way the New York Post writes it is he's not a microcosm of the political psychosis gripping America. He's a microcosm of the drug-induced psychosis gripping the West Coast in particular, right? Th- this, is, this is an insane psychotic drug addict who isn't it's not like hey he's he's trolling the the QAnon type of stuff now now he might as part of his like rambling runs through the internet he might you know settle on some of that stuff but this this wasn't a political attack this was just an attack by a crazy people person this was i think in some cases i would link it to um when when John Hinckley uh shot president Reagan this, you know, that, that wasn't so much of a here, 
it wasn't a political attack that here we're I'm going to shoot President Reagan because I, I want you know I, I don't like his policies. It was just the voices in his head saying that he was going to do this. And if I mean, it doesn't change the fact that you know what his ideology doesn't change the fact that this was was an attack. But it does raise the, what the real question here is, which to me is. You know, yes, we've got to provide more security for our public officials. That, that, that's not the point. But what we have to do is recognize that we, we have to, you know, focus on this huge problem that, that there's these psychotic people. And again, you look at this guy's background, and it's very, very clear that he fit that description. One of our texters says, we need to get away from pointing the finger at someone being a left-leaning or right-leaning criminal. They're criminals. We have enough problems just keeping crime out of our community, and I don't think there's a shortage of criminals on either side of the political spectrum. Well, my point would be, this guy isn't, he's not on the political spectrum. I mean, he lives in a house or outside the house where you got the Black Matter, Lives Matter flag, and he, he, you know, he's, he's on the internet, you know, doing some stuff that's left wing and some stuff that's right wing, but most of it is just he's he's psychotic. That's the issue. Um, our listener Laura in Las Vegas says, Jeff, there is a larger picture also to consider. The streets in these urban cities are filled with mentally unstable homeless folks. We need to address this as all of us are at risk. Yeah, she's absolutely right. I mean, and it's interesting that she's one of our regular listeners from Las Vegas. I was telling the story when we were there a couple weeks ago. We we got in at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and it was on a Thursday, and we're, we're walking up and down the strip and in the middle of the afternoon, and there was this huge police presence all up and down. And I was thinking, man, I've never seen this much of it. You always see cops on the strip, but I've never seen this much of a police presence. Well, it, it was because— Outside the Wynn Hotel, right around noon, you had some crazy guy with a knife had come out. He had stabbed a couple of the street performers, you know, the young ladies who pose as showgirls, and then you'd get your picture taken with them, and you give them 20 bucks or whatever that is, and then went running down the strip just randomly stabbing people, ended up killing two people, I think, and stabbed another six others. But again, this was this was that example. It's not It's not like, oh, this is a political attack or anything. It's just... It's just a psychotic person who is out there who, and then again, if you go into this guy's background, the guy in the Las Vegas case, everybody's going, yeah, yep, well, we we could see all this coming. So I I bring this up only because, again, not to— not to downplay the the significance of the act of violence. That would be the wrong way to look at this. But to simply say that to try to portray this as poli- in political terms misses the overall significance of this. The overall significance is this guy was a violently, mentally unstable person who shouldn't have been in a position to be able to do this at all. And like I say, we've got to do a much better job in this country of identifying people and either getting them the help they need, or if they refuse that, getting them off the street so they don't show up in the middle of the night in their underwear in some congressman's house with a hammer. Themed bumper music. We're at a Halloween-related topic. We're going to be talking about sometime in the two o'clock hour. So stick around for that. Uh, big political news, I guess, over the weekend is that Barack Obama uh, came into Milwaukee. Barack Obama has been on on a tour. He was down in in Georgia 
trying to boost kind of the the sort of failing campaign of a couple of the Georgia Democrats. He was in, I think he's in Pennsylvania at the end of the week. I think he's going to be there. Um, he's also, he was here. He's in a couple of other things. And the Democrats are big, bringing out what they, I think, consider to be their, their, their big gun as a way of trying to, you know, motivate people to get to the polls and things like that. I, I had two thoughts about this. First of all, isn't it interesting that Joe Biden is just nowhere to be found? When it comes to politics, Joe Biden is on on the milk carton. Normally, you would expect that in all these different electoral these states, especially states that Joe Biden carried two years ago, like Wisconsin. And yeah, I, I know some Trump fans. Yeah, Biden won Wisconsin. You would think that Joe Biden would be the guy that they would bring be bringing into Wisconsin. He won Wisconsin last year and two years ago. Uh, Joe Biden uh, won Georgia. And I understand the Trump people don't like that. But, yeah, Joe Biden won Georgia. He's nowhere to be found in, in Georgia. These various states that he won two years ago, they, they don't want him there. And, and he's not coming. He's not campaigning at all. Or if he's campaigning, he's doing it very, very um, on a very, very judicious basis. Why? Because I think a lot of the candidates realize that Joe Biden is toxic, which represents this question of how how did that happen in, in the space of two years? And for everybody who thinks that, oh, we think it's a good idea for, for Joe Biden to run again, well, if, if he can't go out and campaign for Democrat candidates in the midterms, how, how is he seriously going to be able to, to run, you know, two years from now when he has to end up campaigning for himself? Now, for anybody who thinks he might run again, this is this is the clear indicator that that nobody wants him out and campaigning and they're going you know we're back to the future we're going 6 years back and we're bringing you know Barack Obama in he left office 6 years ago so you know he's still there and he's trying to again motivate uh, particularly some of the uh, minority voters to to go out and vote so that, that that's all fine and Barack Obama gives a fiery speech and things like that the other thing i thought was interesting though about his appearance on saturday was the location they chose they they were at a high school gym. I mean, essentially, they were at a high school gym. And I know that he'd done appearances there on two occasions in the past. But I kept thinking, if this is your big gun, if this is the guy that you're really bringing in town and you really want to mobilize support and you're going to have your big, this is 10 days before the election rally, you would have thought maybe that you would have chosen a venue that would draw more people than a high school gym. Now, I understand we're trying to target this again for the city of Milwaukee and trying to encourage people in the city of Milwaukee to go out and vote. So it's a particularly targeted audience. But even within that framework, you know, you, the Summerfest grounds, all the different places that you could go, all the larger sort of venues, they chose a high school gym and they packed the high school gym. But I think that was kind of indicative of I don't know that maybe Barack Obama wasn't even that much of a draw. All right. When we come back, they're trying to find your car. Are they doing the right thing? Gas prices and Halloween. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Mike Spalding, before you leave, mm-hmm. do you and your wife 
Have When it comes to watching television, do you and your wife share the same tastes or do you watch different stuff? We are sort of a Venn diagram. We share most of the same tastes, but we do still have like our separate shows Okay, that, we'll, that we're all right with watching. Now, the reason I ask you is because if, if my wife and I... Who are we are otherwise? I, I think incredibly compatible. But if we were that Venn diagram, we'd have very very little overlap. There, there's no question about. It. I mean, she will. She just walks in and just shakes her head with that look on her face because I, I'll, I'll watch sports and she's got a modest interest in sports. But just tell me who wins, you know, or she'll watch it for. She she would never sit and, and watch a game from beginning to end. She unless if we were out somewhere as part of a party, but she just wouldn't casually do that. You know the the features that air during. Uh, football games and stuff like that where it's like a a charming story about a rookie who people might not know a lot about and you go oh that's really cool those are made for my wife jasmine is very invested in like the give me a reason why i need to care yeah but but, uh, it's it's not not the sports and then i like i was watching there's a movie that dropped on netflix a remake of the book all quiet on the western front and and i i was i was watching that and it's it's a very very good movie i'm about two-thirds of the way through but it's also very graphic it's 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 world war Mm one and she walks in and she kind of looks at some of the scenes of battle and she just kind of shakes her head i like um in, to, give, to give you an idea, so in October on Vice TV, which is this obscure thing, they've, they, they've been calling it Slamtober. And so they do these things like it's been like all wrestling documentaries. They do like the dark side of the ring. Oh, sure. And then they do this thing, Tales from the Territories. And this is the stuff that I grew up with. You know, it, it's like going mm-hmm. back and these are the we'll, we'll give you the background and how it didn't end very well for these various wrestlers and stuff. And I admit I'm fascinated by this. And my wife will walk in and she'll see me watching this and she'll just kind of like shake her head going, you're this really smart guy. And, and here you're watching this kind of stuff. It. I'm glad you mentioned the wrestling documentaries. I'm I again all, same as you. Things that I grew up on, I'm very interested in in watching. And those pieces, I yeah, it's on Vice, the behind right. dark side of the ring or whatever yeah. it is. Oh, they suck me right in because yeah. they're so they're so fascinating. If you ever want to know a fascinating person, don't know personality wise, but definitely lifestyle. Professional wrestler, man, there's nothing like that. Oh that yeah, is. and and it doesn't, and it it just generally. There's there's not a lot of old professional wrestlers yeah. because it's I mean it's just between the lifestyle and how physical the, how physical it is and the fact that a lot of these guys get screwed up on drugs and pills and all that stuff but but anyway so I, I watch those type of things and she just looks at me she doesn't get it she on the other hand and I have said this before she is a Hallmark movie gal oh so okay. and and then then there's a couple other channels which are out there now that kind of duplicate the Hallmark mm-hmm. movie stuff. But but that's that's what she likes. She likes to watch it because they're predictable. They have, you know, 10 minutes in, you know how they're going to turn out. You know, there's going to be the controversy, but you know the boy is going to get the girl or vice versa, and they're going to move to the town, and he or she isn't going to go back to New York City, and they're going to live in the town they grew up in, and they're going to save the the, the local, you know, Christmas house or whatever. You, you, you know it. It's predictable. It's feel good. Mm-hmm. It's all those things. So I and 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 that's all well and good. But but here's the thing. They've started with the Christmas stuff already. They don't even wait till November. Well, at least wait till November. Uh, okay, the other day I, I'm sitting there and I'm listening, Fran is in the other room, and I'm listening and I'm hearing all this like Christmas music because she's watching and again, I don't know if it's the Hallmark channel or one of those sort of channels, and, and they're they're all they're into their Christmas it's not even Halloween yet, and they're into their, their Christmas shows. And I, I did, I just said, I, I can't, it's way too soon. It's just flat 
way too soon for this because the hollow the shows in general are syrupy, but the Christmas ones and I mean, I'm not a bah humbug guy. I just I'm just it we're we're not even to Halloween yet. Get me through Thanksgiving before that. Yeah, please. You know, if it's a day after Thanksgiving, I'm okay with it. I mean, I'm okay with the holiday season starting tomorrow on November one. But you can only take so it's like the candy, the Halloween candy, those movies. You can have a one, and we can sit down and have hot chocolate one night, and we watch one, and it's fine. But if you're giving me what are we at sixty days till Christmas or fifty five? That's that's too many. Man. Which brings me, <laughs> thank you, Mike. But that brings me to what I want to discuss next. All right, tomorrow, November first at four p.m. WLIT FM which is a station in Chicago, they will be playing Christmas music round the clock starting tomorrow at 4 p.m. It is the earliest date in the station's 22 years of hosting the format that is making that is making the switch. They say, why? Because listeners love it. Um, and so they're, they're, they're adult contemporary. They are going to be switching over to Christmas music, um, the first Christmas song they're going to play is, um, you know, uh, All I Want for Christmas, I think, by Mariah Carey or something like that. But they're, they're switching over tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. Are you ready for Christmas music 24-7? I don't think so and i do like the holidays i'm not a believe it or not i actually do like christmas music for the month or whatever when you're out shopping and it's snowing and you're like okay everyone's sort of happy-ish kind of stressed out by the holidays i'm with it for the month of december again 30 full days before we even get to december 1st that's a little overboard right and so like tonight for example we're going to watch it's the great pumpkin charlie brown on apple tv all right so tomorrow 24 7 Christmas music. And and that is, of course, consistent with, again, what a lot of these channels are doing with the Christmas movies, 24-7, round-the-clock Christmas movies from now until Christmas. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. Now, of course, you know, radio stations can do whatever they want. I mean, that, that's it's not a question of can you do it. My question is just from a preference, um, when, when, is, when is it time to start? focusing on Christmas when I put my lawn furniture away <laughs> like I don't want to be hearing uh, all I want for Christmas is you while my patio furniture is still outside the granted it's only like a week or so more but th- that's, well, that, that's too a good early. point it's going to be 60 degrees this week you know that that's right and we're you're going to be having you know all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth okay 855-616-1620 that's the WTMJ talk and text line all right is is it too early to start all Christmas all the time and if not when is the appropriate time? We discuss in just a moment. One of my very favorite songs, Werewolves of London. The, um, now, the reason what we're talking about, if you're just tuning in, is uh, it's an adult contemporary station in Chicago called WLIT, which is sort of a middle of the pack. And normally, most of the year, their ratings, they're probably you know, 10th to 15th. It's, it's not one of the... You know, big stations in Chicago, and I don't mean this in an offensive way, but once they switch to Christmas music, they get this huge bump. They are switching to Christmas music tomorrow. That That's the goal at four o'clock. And my question is, is this, is it too soon? And when is, when is the appropriate um, 
When is the appropriate time? Jeff, our daughter is 20 and lives at home, and she will start decorating for Christmas tomorrow. Huh. We start this time every year. Hmm. Jeff, I would rather have Christmas music than political ads any day. Well, my guess is this particular station probably doesn't get a lot of political ads that are there. But, yeah, political ads are going to be with us for another week. But is it too is it too soon? Jeff, I think that they should begin Black Friday, 6 a.m. That would be the day after Thanksgiving. And December 26, 12 a.m., no, no exceptions. Jeff, absolutely, I don't want to hear or see anything Christmas till the day after Thanksgiving. I look the other way when I walk in a store with Christmas decorations that are up before that. Um, Jeff, I think I could see maybe Christmas music starting the Wednesday of Thanksgiving week to get us in the mood. Jeff, I think it's way too early. At least wait until at least after Thanksgiving. I think that would be nice. Um, Jeff, if my favorite station starts playing Christmas music now, it's no longer my favorite station. Wait until Thanksgiving. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff, for me, it would be December 1st because that's enough time after Thanksgiving is over. And a lot of Christmas music, I've, well, not a lot, but some Christmas music I've noticed is kind of depressing. And if I, if I started listening to it too soon, I would probably get really burnt out on it. And I would want to like not hear anymore before Christmas has even come. Well, there is kind of the, the burnout factor, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not a Scrooge either. I mean, I, I, I like, you know, getting into the Christmas spirit and things like that. To me, I think the answer is, it's certainly, whether it's December 1st or after Thanksgiving or things like that, because that's, you know, that's when we start thinking about putting up decorations and, you know, and getting the—we have an artificial tree, you know, and, and getting the tree out and getting it decorated, and, and I love it. But that's—to me, that's something you're doing in December, not— not November 1st, not at all. Yeah, and I started too early for Halloween, like watching horror movies and stuff like that. And and quite honestly, I've gotten kind of burnt out on that too. So I, got, I do need to work on my timing and, and consider it a learning experience for the Christmas season. There you go. Thanks for the call. Jeff, it's never too soon to bring on the holiday cheer. It's it's a short season. Yeah, but... Well, at that time, you know, that that's like Christmas lights in July. I mean, seriously. Now, look, I, I understand that there might be, for example, there might be a value to, to putting up Christmas lights like this week, for example, because it, it's still going to be mild out there. So I'm not saying you have to wait till you know, December 1st and be freezing, you know, when you're out there putting up the Christmas lights. But even if you decide you want to put them up, there's nothing at all that says that you have to turn them on. I just think it's it's too soon. Let's talk to Jeff. I'm Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. What do you think? Uh, I share the sentiment of a lot of the callers. Um, I prefer after Thanksgiving. I remember the year that the station did it, because obviously I'm in the Chicago area, and I thought it was great. And I think they did start it after Thanksgiving. Um, but every year, it, I wouldn't say every year it's gotten earlier and earlier, because they've had early November and then switched back to mid-November. Right. But this is ludicrous. But they are going along with the stores, because all the retail stores, starting tomorrow, will take all their Halloween stuff out, except like the stuff that they put 50% off, right. and then replace it with Christmas stuff. So, I mean, I hate to sound <laughs> cynical, but it is about the money. Yeah, no, I think you're, well, I think you're right. No, thanks for the call. I guess I've just always—my I, I, my thing is I can't jump holidays. You know, I mean, the next— 
The next holiday we got coming up is Thanksgiving. You know, Thanksgiving's coming up in, what, about three weeks or so? You know, three, what is it, three or four weeks, whatever it is, from, what, three weeks from Thursday or whatever, whatever that might be. So I'm focused on Thanksgiving. Once you get me past Thanksgiving, then I'm going to be willing to focus on Christmas. Jeff, two weeks ago, I was in a medical waiting room. Hallmark Christmas was on. <laughs> it just, um, yeah, I, I get it. One of our texters is saying, we need a little Christmas right this very minute. We need a little Christmas now. Well, I, I guess given, you know, you know, what's going on with the election season, I, I understand that. And it's, it's one thing to have a little bit of Christmas. It's another thing. I'm just thinking, you know, 24-7, really. Jeff, Christmas music makes people happy, although it's not my flavor on December 24th. If other people enjoy it, good for those stations. Well, that's what I think is interesting about this, because clearly, you know, one of the things that's happening is they're, they're doing it because it works. They're going to get a, a ratings boost from being the first one, and that's what they're, they're, they're all about, because there will be people that tune in. And, and that's all well and good. It's just, it's not going to be me that ends up, uh, you know, tuning in. So in any event, <clears throat> that, that's, that will be the switch. I don't know when the first Milwaukee radio station will switch over. The one thing I, one thing I, I think will gar- I can guarantee is, well, we might play some Christmas bumper music starting sometime in December. I can pretty much guarantee you that we're not flipping to Christmas music 24-7. Let's talk to Tim in Oconomowoc. Tim here on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Hi, uh, I think it's great that they're starting right It's great they're starting right now because when my friends, when we all travel down south to play golf, it says, uh, just into Illinois, I'm going to drive them nuts <laughs> with Christmas music. They shouldn't be able to tee off. They'll be so rattled. <laughs> you're you're, you're, you're going to throw them off. Right. That's it. You're, you're going you're gonna to throw them off. This is going to be that strategic stuff. You'll, you'll be betting on the holes. You're going to get that tactical advantage because they'll be freaked out by Christmas music in early November. I'll start singing things on the first tee. They won't know what to do with themselves. <laughs> there you go. Thanks for the call. Well, that's 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 a fair enough sort of thing. And again, it's I I I'm just intrigued by this, and I'm not being critical. I mean, obviously, from a from a business perspective, they think this is the way to go, and they'll they'll probably will get a little bit of a bump. But just like just like I'm not ready to watch, and I like Christmas movies. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm I. But just like I'm not ready to watch Christmas movies. The day before Halloween, I'm I'm not I'm not ready to like listen to Christmas music twenty four seven starting in the beginning of November. To each thing, to everything, there is a season, and right now we're in the Halloween season. Tomorrow we will be in the Thanksgiving season. Christmas comes later on. Jeff, I love. Christmas music as much as anybody, but right now I'm golfing, so I can't make that jump yet. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Now, look, if, if you lived in Florida, you know, or you lived in California, um, where it was nice weather year-round, and you had to figure out, okay, you know, what, what's it like to have Christmas when it's 60 degrees outside, or 70 degrees, or whatever, okay, well, well maybe that's it. But I, I agree, you know, if you're still trying to you know, deal with the falling leaves and stuff. My goodness, isn't that too soon for Christmas music? Jeff, stop rushing the holidays. No one enjoys a rushed holiday. I think it should all start the day after Thanksgiving. Um, Jeff, what I don't get is why do I stop they stop playing Christmas music the day after Christmas? Yeah, that's that's sort of a, an interesting factor as well. It's like, okay, well, maybe that 
I, I would start it later if I was the king. I would start it later, and then I would probably carry it on through like that week between Christmas and, and New Year's, and then you kind of focus on the new year. All right, before we get too far ahead of ourselves with Christmas, though, I, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that today is Halloween. Now, I understand in many, many, many neighborhoods around our listening area, the, the trick-or-treating went, went on yesterday or, or maybe Saturday. So I, I get that. But there are some neighborhoods where the trick-or-treating is going to be going on tonight. And it is a story that really caught my attention, took me back for when I was a kid in the New York Times, because one of the issues that challenges you as parents is how do you stay sane around all this hol- all the candy? Okay, so, you know, you're trying to encourage your kid to eat well, you know, eat healthy. You know, you're trying to manage the kid's food, make sure you eat the broccoli and the cauliflower, all that stuff. And then the kid comes home with this big bag of candy. And kids being kids, heck, adults being adults with candy, you know, you just kind of want to dive in. Huge story in the New York Times about how you manage this. Do you ration it out? Okay, okay, Mikey, you can only have three pieces of candy a day for the next, you know, we're going to make this last. Or, okay, here's the deal, um, you know, I'm going to pick this out, and you only get a couple pieces if you eat your vegetables. Eat your carrots, and you get some candy. Or, Mike Spalding, you just let them wade in. You just kind of, okay, put it out there and just go to town. We were a, uh, you get X amount of pieces on the night of, and then we'll see how things go. You know, school lunches, it'll be dispersed in, and then a couple of pieces here and there. We were not a full-on, like, go-all-out family, because your kid's stomach will be upset, and then it becomes your problem. Yeah, my, you know? see, see, my parents were the other, my parents were, ah, just go just go do it, you know, and, and just just wait on in, and then, you know, you, you can suffer your own consequences and stuff like that. Maybe that explains so very much. I don't know. You know, the thing about Daryl Brooks and his antics is now that he has been convicted, there will be a much, 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 much shorter leash. I mean, the you know, d- during the trial process, Mike, you know, the whole concern was you, you want to make sure that something's – you don't make a mistake that's going to prejudice the trial and result in having to do the whole thing over again. Well, after you've been convicted, there, there's no longer the presumption of, of innocence. And his antics, like I say, there's – I mean, there, there's still rules with regard to sentencings and stuff, but it's – it, it's it's nowhere near as stringent. She doesn't have to worry about, gee, worst case scenario, if something happens at the sentencing and it gets reversed and he has to come back to be resentenced, so he gets, you know, his six life sentences, doesn't make any difference. So I think that the tolerance for his bad behavior is going to be way, way low. Yeah, you saw that this afternoon. I said about 10 minutes in. That was from the beginning of Judge Dora walking into the courtroom to when he was removed. He was arguing about what kind of ankle restraints were on that were placed on him and saying that uh, they were hidden from the jury and he wasn't able to tell the jury what what he was being shackled to the chair with an electric monitor and all this kind of stuff and it didn't last, not last very long. No, no, like like I say, and again, he now that you've been convicted, now he, you know, he's going to have the there'll be the appellate process and you can raise these different issues and appeal. But but as far as the courtroom antics. I think those days have come and gone, and there's going to be a, a very, very low thing. I, I was looking—I forget where I saw this. I don't know if it was on the Internet or one of the newspapers. They were showing this this woman who was going trick-or-treating. She was dressed as the judge. You see that? Yeah, She I did. was a dead ringer for Judge Doro. Just yeah, she was pretty spot ringer. on. She was pretty spot on. Uh, I, I know she was getting a lot of love on social media, especially in the— uh, like the Waukesha Facebook groups that developed after this whole situation, yeah, oh, she's yeah. getting a lot of love for it. Yeah, oh, oh no, it was just it was just it was it was an amazing, creative.
negative sort of thing. Hey, when we come back, it's the one aspect of inflation that all of us see on a daily basis. Why does it matter so much? I will explain. We will discuss. Stick around. Who you going to call? Ghostbusters. That, the original Ghostbusters movie, I watched it a while back. I, I watched it right right around the time that they were coming out with the remake. Um, and um, it actually, I'm amazed at how well that movie holds up. The, the, now, that I then went back and I made a mistake. I watched the sequel, the second one, which is just... There's not enough CKs in Suck to describe how bad the the the, the sequel was, but the original Ghostbusters movie, I, I think, I mean, it holds up just in incredibly, in, incredibly well. Um, so I, that might be. I'm trying to think of. We got some friends coming over tonight for dinner, but after they go, maybe it's time to fire up the uh, fire up Ghostbusters along with it's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Okay, one of I think that the dominant political issue. And it, I was saying earlier, earlier in the program, we were talking about the decision that the Democrats have made to essentially run on abortion. About half, when all is said and done, my guess is about half of all the advertising dollars done by Democrats, not just in the state of Wisconsin, but across the country, will be tied to the issue of abortion. And, and, and that's it. And regardless of where Republicans are on the abortion issue, for example, there's a big difference between where Ron Johnson is and where Tim Michaels is. That doesn't matter. That, that's the issue. Democrats, it's abortion, it's abortion, it's abortion. I personally believe that that's going to turn out to be a, a loser strategy because it only, it only takes you so far. And I understand there's some people that are very passionate about it, but we'll, I guess we'll see. I, I just don't think that's going to be enough. But I do understand that, you know, you, you go with what you got. That, that's, that's just it. And the truth of the matter is, this year, given, you know, the issues on crime, it's difficult for Democrats to defund the police crowd to run run on crime as an, as an issue. It's difficult for Democrats to run on the economy because the truth is the economy is a mess. Now, you can argue— you can argue, well, it's not fair to blame Joe Biden on, on this, and, and, and that's a whole different story. But, you know, going back to 1992, you know, the whole Bill, first Bill Clinton campaign, it's the economy, comma, stupid. That, that's it. People generally, at least most people, vote their pocketbooks. And that's, that's why you see the swings. If people feel good about the economy, it's good for the incumbent part. It's good for the president's party. If, if they don't feel good about the economy, well— then you, you tend to have, you know, a, a backlash. And that's why I think, and maybe, you know, you're going to be able to call up nine days from now, you know, a week from tomorrow and, and say, oh, when we get the results, say, oh, there was never this this red wave. But I, I think there's going to be that. But I think a large part of it is because of the economy and the effect that that has. Now, of the different things, we, we've talked in various contexts over the last year or so about the effect of inflation. You, we, we all see this. The, price, the cost of living has, has gone up, what, um, year to year last month, what was it, 8.2%. So, you know, in order to buy the same things in September of 2022 that you bought in September of 2021, it cost you 8% more, which is a, a pretty staggering amount if if you think about it. And we've talked before on this program about the different 
I don't know that the different things that, you know, really hit home. When did you realize that inflation was as bad as it was? And, you know, people would call up and say, well, when I, I recognized this, when I got my, when I went to the grocery store and I paid for eggs or I paid for, you know, a gallon of milk or I, I bought this or, you know, when I got my bill from my lawn service and they were putting in all these sur- surcharges or, or, or whatever, you know, everybody has at least some different indicators. But the one thing that is common to all of us when it comes to inflation is gas prices. It's the one thing that is absolutely inescapable because we all drive, or at least most of us drive, and we all need our cars. I need my car to get me to work and to get me home. You need your car to take your kids to school or to take your kids to the extracurricular activities. You need your car if you're going to go out to dinner. You need your car if you're going to go to the grocery store. You need your car if you're going to go over and see your friends that live, you know, a few miles away. And as we're driving around, we see gas prices all the time. It's not just that once a week or twice a week when we stop in at the gas station and we fill up the tank and then you put your credit card in or you go in and you give them cash or whatever and you say, oh my gosh, this is how much it just cost me to fill up my tank. It's not just that. It's also every day as you're driving around, you see those big signs that they have outside all the gas stations that say $3.65 or $4. Or if you drive a truck, diesel prices up over $5 a, a gallon, well over $5 a gallon. Or if you drive a car with a diesel engine, you're paying over $5 a gallon. And, and that's that's why I, I think when it comes to the psychological effect of inflation, gas prices are, are number one. First of all, we all have to buy it. You know, you can make a decision that says, hey, I'm not going to go out to dinner. I'm going to eat at home because, well, it, things are just too expensive at the restaurant. You can say, all right, I'm, I'm going to switch over. I'm going to have hamburgers instead of steaks. I love steaks, but the cost of steak is so much, I'm going to switch over to hamburger. That, that is the alternative you have. But the truth is, other than not driving or substantially cutting back on driving, when it comes to gasoline, you got to buy it. You really have very, very little choice. And that's one of the reasons I think when you see high gasoline prices, gasoline prices that are over $3.50 a gallon around here, over $4 a gallon, $7 a gallon in California, diesel prices over $5 a gallon, I think more than anything else, when it comes to the impact of inflation, and probably also because it's in our face constantly, I think gas prices are, for most of us, the number one indicator of inflation and how bad it is. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is a WTMJ talk and text line. All right, gas prices, how does that affect you? And psychologically, I think that's the thing too. You wake up in the morning, you're driving to work, and you see, oh, gas prices just went up another dime. Or, hey, I I remember two years ago, gas prices were $2.50 a gallon, or it was around two bucks a gallon, and now we're looking at three fifty or four bucks or whatever. I think psychologically, when it comes to affecting us and sending a message about inflation, gas prices are number one, and they're always going to be number one. What do you think? 855-616-1620. We discuss in just a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. You know, I bet you, and I say this seriously, 
with everything else that was going on, I think Joe Biden's approval ratings would be, well, a couple points better at least, at least if if gas prices hadn't gone as high as they had and now haven't settled as as high as they are. Because gas, you, you can I think you can hide a lot of stuff when it comes to inflation. But gasoline, no. Jeff, our fuel tank cost over $1,100 to fill up last week, about twice as much as last year at this time. We'll be setting the thermostat quite a bit lower than in years past. Jeff, the reason I'm concerned about gas prices is the overall effect of the economy. The truckers moving products to food store, which raises prices up. Yeah, when you've got the cost of diesel gasoline, for example, being you know over $5 a gallon, that, that price does, of course, ends up, you know, getting passed on to this, um, passed on to people. You know, there's no question about it. Another texter makes the same point. People forget that high gas prices raise the price for everything that is shipped, goods, food, etc. This piece I'm looking at in the New York Times, though, I think really it, it, it kind of hits it. Why gas is, again, so critical. First of all, um, as I was saying earlier, it's the one price that is visible all the time, that, that every time we're driving, you know, you, you go past gas station after gas station where you see what the price of it is. So it, it's not like, hey, the local grocery store, you know, raised the price of a, of a 12-pack of soda or a gallon of milk or whatever. You don't see that all, all the time. So you, you see it even when you're not buying it. Also, um, with gas, it's, it's a product that's that's sort of uniform. By that I mean, the there's only like three grade. Typically, there's a, putting aside diesel. There's you, you pull up at the gas pump. There's three grades. You got regular, you got the mid grade, and you got the premium. So there, there there's no hiding these different prices. When you, for example, go to the grocery store, you're you're going to be bundling stuff in. You're going to buy like your eggs, and you're going to mix it in with bread, and you're going to mix it in with cereal, and all these different types of things. But but you're not going to necessarily – then you just get a bill at the end. And and you might say, okay, boy, the price of milk or the price of eggs has gone up. But it's going to all be bundled in so it doesn't stand out as much as as gasoline does. And, of course, with gasoline, it, it's just so very easy to, you know, track track the price that's there. And that's why I think, you know, you, you have this huge impact that you see, you know, with, you know, gas prices – that are are out there and why why those high gas prices and you know and I, I don't want to we, we've got a couple of people who want to talk about you know why the gas prices are high that that's a discussion for another day that's I mean I, I understand I, I believe that there's a lot of blame to go around and I understand that some of it is Putin's war in Ukraine that's dealt dealt with the supply thing I believe a lot of it has been the Joe Biden war on fossil fuels but but regardless you're looking at what I think is historically consistently high gas prices, and that is psychologically, I think, affecting everybody. Jeff, gas is ridiculously high, and just wait till people start getting their winter fuel bills. Now, there's no question about um, that. Jeff, uh, my energy bill is twice as much as it was last week. Um, No question about that. That's going to be a factor as well. Jeff, Americans get hysterical about high gas prices and have been since the 70s. They're kind of like the stock market. They go up, they go down, and that's going to continue. Well, I, I understand, but that's 
I mean, when the stock market goes up and down, it affects people as well. And I think that if you look at concerns that people have, it's easy to say, oh, don't worry about $4 a gallon gasoline. Don't worry about, you know, four fifty dollars or $5 or $6 gasoline. And my response is nuts to that. That's, that. That is a very, very real factor because you have to buy gasoline. And the effect of this is people are, we're not going to stop driving. We might cut back a little if the cost gets too great, but you're not going to like doing that as well. Now, gasoline is out there. And if you're trying to look for one predictor of how the public feels about the economy, how the public feels about whether it's fair or not, you know, the, the people that are in power, I think a big indicator is, is gas prices. And and right now, a week before the election with gas prices, I would say stubbornly high, you know, stuck around, you know, for regular gasoline, you know, 360 a gallon around here. And I understand some people could say, oh, it's down from five bucks a gallon. Yeah, but it's it's way up from where it was not that long ago. Those type of prices and the fact that it is so visible and the fact that it affects all of us on a regular basis, it's not good for people who are trying to sell us that the, econ- the idea that the economy is great. So we'll see election one week from tomorrow, and we're going to have a lot to say about it between now and then.